are listening to Tech Reads, interviews with emerging technology thought leaders. Our sponsor is SoftTech, the premier technology trade association that has been serving northern Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo County since 1997. Our mission is to create soft tech moments where people connect, explore ideas, and create new business opportunities. Learn more at softec.org. Today I'm excited to have Angelica Kladis. Is that how you say that? Yeah, Kladis. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> and Kevin yeah, Hannigan from back east. Is it Minnesota? No. New England, Massachusetts. New England, Massachusetts. We have Bob DeMuchel from Aurora Grande. And then John and I are here in San Luis Obispo. And today we're going to learn more about this book that they recently published called Data Literacy in Practice, which is officially, I think, coming out in about two weeks. Um, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon. Um, and what I'd like to start with is just informal in introductions. Angelica, maybe share a little bit around how you got into data literacy, how it sort of shaped your career. Uh, before the uh, show started, we were talking a little bit about the fact that you've actually been doing this work for quite some time. What sort of hurdles have you overcome in becoming a subject matter expert in this topic? And then what are the, common most, the most common misperceptions people even have about data literacy? Well, that's an, that's the last one is an easy one, <laughs> but I will get in that later. So uh, I'm Angelica from the Netherlands, uh, across the ocean, way across the ocean. Um, I, I work already with data, I think, for more than 20, 25, 30 years. Um, and it all started out with statical lists, right, that I would run around in the office trying to get information from everybody. And then we suddenly moved in 2005, six. We moved to a beautiful tool called uh, called ClickView, uh, and suddenly things were happening very quick. And at that point, um, I was also studying at the university here in Amsterdam, uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, I got to know ClickView at school as well. And uh, um, I was quite handy at it, but also I was a manager. I always was uh, uh, giving instructions how to work with the, system, the systems at our offices. I worked for a big uh, uh, a governmental organization called UWV, which helps people to get money when they are sick, on sick leave, or when people are unemployed. And uh, I was studying at the university, and then my man, the manager from the university said, could you please come and join us as well as a teacher? And uh, uh, that happened 15 years ago. And uh, I'm still there as a teacher, besides my normal job at Bitmetric, uh, where I am a manager of operations and a data literacy evangelist. So that's what I do. I work with data. Um, uh, I teach about data, um, uh, but also I like to teach about data uh, and how to work with data. And that's already what I do 15 years. And suddenly about six years ago, seven years ago, I think the, the hype started amongst data literacy. And... It's just like reading, reading a book, but you also need to be able to read visualizations that we provide from our profession. Uh, so that's actually what we started out with. Uh, the biggest hurdle, um, actually, I don't have hurdles that much, um, but 
I like the combination of being able to work in the field of data and analytics, but also teach about data analytics. And that combination is very, very powerful because I work for actual customers. That is what probably you have been reading in the book as well, but I also teach about it. So I learned from my own mistakes. Um, data literacy, the biggest misconception is that everybody is data literate from this part to that part. Because when we book a journey nowadays uh, uh, through booking.com or we book a, a house uh, somewhere in the States for uh, uh, to stay during our two week vacation, we go to Airbnb, we book a house and uh, we set our filters. Uh, we discuss the outcomes that we have, um, maybe some extra filters in like air conditioning, washing machines, and then we discuss it again. We get results, we discuss it with each other and we make a data informed decision. That's also what I described in the book. And I think everybody has some common sense of data literacy because we all make data informed decisions nowadays due, due to our shopping online. So what were some of the early kind of titles that someone would have? Was, was someone who's a business analyst, I mean, before we had this data literacy kind of title, what sort of job roles would they typically be in? Well, before six years about one consultant, one BI consultant could do everything. He could do the analysis. He could do the data analysis, connecting data dots, uh, build beautiful dashboards. And nowadays you see that it's more spread into different kinds of roles. Um, like we have an information analyst. We have somebody who is specialized in data visualizations. And then we have something like a, a, a data architect who combines data or data engineers to combine data and create models that we can use. So it 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 became more I think it's better. Yeah, more specialized. And I think it's a good thing that we have more specializations in our line of work because it was way too much. Sometimes projects were even way too much. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Kevin, on to you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about how you got into data literacy? how it shaped your career, uh, what hurdles you've experienced in sort of your exploration of becoming a subject matter expert or sort of come up, and then what in your mind are some of the most common misperceptions about data literacy? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, it, it's an interesting journey. I think everyone's journey is interesting, but for me, as I started going up the ranks in management leadership in, in organizations, I quite honestly was seeing people making really, what I thought was really bad decisions. and trying to understand why, not every time, but there was a majority of the times where someone would hold up a chart and say, look, here's my answer, I told you so. And I knew it wasn't right. I knew it wasn't you know, completely the full picture. And so I started doing a lot of learning, learning and research on the side, starting in psychology, why are people making decisions the way they make, how the brain works. And it was this kind of light bulb moment that I, I think what kind of drove me towards it is, as Angelica said, it's a combination of working with data, but it's also a combination of these, what I call life or forever skills that we kind of stop learning about once we finish like primary school, like critical thinking, creativity, listening. And so it, it kind of helped shape my career because I learned about those skills. And then I realized, you know, I'm being inclusive by getting different perspectives. The, the team is more engaged. I'm making better decisions. And it was this aha moment that, you know what, I work for companies that do data and analytics, and yet we're teaching people the tools, 
our tools of how to use them to make insights and decisions, but we're not teaching them the skills they need to apply if that decision is missing the context or missing the perspective. So those are some of the hurdles I think at the same time I've overcome is it, it is not a one, so you know, you could say technical and soft skills. This is kind of right in the middle. It's a little bit of both. And so it's a little bit abstract where people are like, I understand data, but we all read, right? But we know that there's words that have different contexts and you get the context based off the sense, whatever, how it is said. So like the word sanction, it can be a positive or a negative, depending if it's a verb or, or similar. So we all use the sentence, but in data, we see a number. Then maybe it's like the sales, they're down 12%. And we don't question it. We don't look at the context. We just drive forward. And I think the fact that there's so much data available the biggest hurdle is managers, leaders, individuals see that as a positive thing. I see it as potential for positive, but it's a bad thing if they don't check the data and check the context to make sure they have the right meaning. And it's just something that we don't organically do. It's, it's unconscious. We just drive forward. We have the bias. So those things have kind of driven me to, to get to where we are. I, I think to add on Angelica's misconception, um, there's a lot of people that think data, it's, it's technical. I don't need to deal with it. Um, but like Angelica said, you go on Amazon, you look at a review, I want to buy a coffee pot, which do I do? I, where would I go on vacations? You look on the news during COVID, and you see all those charts. Everyone sees data. So don't think of data as just a number or a visual. It, it's information as well. It's, it's sentiment. It's, it's text. And this is not just for organizations. This is for everyone that wants to make better decisions and not fall victim to misinterpretation or mis not disinformation where it's deliberate, it's, it's unintentional, but all of us will look at data and draw a conclusion that's not rational. It's just human nature. Right, right, right. No, I think that's helpful. And given today, yes, the way you can spin information and I know that you can take information data and on one chart, it looks horrendous on the same data on another chart, it can look like rosy. I mean, it's, it's amazing how you can manipulate the numbers to further your agenda. So understanding and looking beneath, which is the hard work I think that a lot of people don't want to do. Uh, so maybe yeah. we, we lean on data literacy uh, experts in our company to do the hard work and say, no, no, wait a minute, before you make this decision, here's what you need to know. Um, how can we become so some initially these questions i don't i you know i'm a i work with authors and i don't work in big corporations i kind of exited that world many years ago intentionally um but so some of my questions are going to be a little bit more esoteric maybe leaning but then john if you've got anything to chime in on um how can we become more self-aware about our own biases and filters that can actually expand our point of view, because I know that I have a tendency to filter out the information that doesn't support my viewpoint, maybe my own agenda. And um, I see that as a bad thing because I think having a point of view, you need to be open to other people's points of view. The longer I live, the more I realize that. So how can we start to be more self-aware around doing that? Kevin, you wanna take a first shot? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, I think the first thing is we all have to be aware that we have it. 
and that's the hardest hurdle. We'll we'll talk to organizations and you'll ask them to raise their hand if, if you believe you have bias. Maybe half the room won't and, and they think it's voodoo or magic. So to me, it starts by understanding we all have it. Um, being more self-aware to say, okay, the brain works this way. We are an emotional brain. And so we are more prone to finding data that supports our opinion. Um, so that's one of the reasons we wrote the book and we have frameworks is we want people to practice basically. The, the way to become more self-aware is to practice. So anytime you see a data point, ask yourself in what situation is this data point misleading or is it not true? Um, imagine you went to the doctor and the doctor um, you give them all your symptoms, right? You give them all your data and you say you have a fever, you know, your, your runny nose, all these things. And the doctor just skips the whole diagnostic phase. Like, you know what you have, you have, I don't know, some weird disease that you only get like once every 10 years that comes out and you're like, well, why do you think that? And they're like, well, I just saw an ad for this place that, that, that is prevalent to it. It's not here, but it's, it's in my mind. You have that that's not how they work right doctors follow the scientific method but in business we don't do that we do the opposite we're like here's what i hear here's what i think you have move on um so practicing frameworks that allow you to question which is easier said than done because like you said it's emotional it's human nature we tend to want to validate our opinions we don't like to say we're wrong and i think quite honestly we have to get over ourselves a little bit and, and be open to that not be so apt to trust our gut yep Angelica, what are your thoughts on? Well, it's actually the same. I and that's the most. That's that's I think also a very cool part of the journey that that Kevin and I have undertaken uh, about removing the clutter and the emotions uh, from messages that we see in the news, for example, around the pandemic. Uh, because if we dig deeper into the into the material, how do you say that the 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 uh, the material. Uh, yeah, yeah, the data, the things that we read and remove all the emotional fractions, the, the, the essence of the message will be there. And that's what we should also do when we discuss outcomes from our reports uh, um, uh, at our work, right? We should do it in our private lives when we read news messages around um, some kind of topics like the Ukraine war or like uh, the pandemic we just uh, uh, have and it's still here, it's not gone. Um, but if we are able to remove that clutter and that noise, we can actually understand the message even better. That's my biggest takeaway from this journey. That I learned. Yeah. Okay. Um, having all this data is clearly a competitive advantage. In fact, I was even I had written down previously privileged information because I actually think about people people's career paths oftentimes or even companies who leapfrog another often have privileged information that someone else doesn't have. And that's how they're able to sort of jump on an opportunity or get something out on market um, because they've gotten some data that other people don't have. And clearly big companies like Google, you know, the FANG companies are collecting a lot of information and data. So they have an advantage over us, the small guys, but they're also very slow to pivot and actually get off the dime and move the ship in the direction where the opportunities lie. Do you have suggestions on how we as small business owners, which I think a lot of our listeners are, can pivot quicker and gain an advantage or where we can find the data that we can tune into and make a little bit more you know, tangible decisions to sort of 
get take jump on opportunities because I just that's an advantage small businesses will always have over the big guys. Kevin, you want to address that? Absolutely. Yeah. So I, I would say another way to say privilege info is one of the things that they have when they have privilege information in that scenario is it's specific to a, an outcome a need. So, you know, the, the, there's data everywhere and it's kind of like the needle in the haystack. If you don't know what you're looking for, or you don't know what you're asking for. If you, in other words, if you don't have an organizational goal, and you're not then looking for data to help you achieve that, you're going to be all over the data and you might find something useful, but you could spend five months looking at something that's not relevant. So I think the biggest takeaway I tell people is start with your outcomes. What, what do you want to do? Where do you want to innovate? What, what are your goals for an organization? And then that can lead you backwards into questions you can ask of the data to see if it exists. What other organizations that follow the similar trend? What other innovations of other organizations done? What is the customer database telling us about different dimensions that they like that drove the right outcome? But if you don't know where you want to go or what that outcome is, you can't really drive towards it. And I'm not saying you have to know the answer, because if you know the answer, why bother doing the analysis? But you have to have a hypothesis. Like, I want to be able, as a small business, I want to be able to double my revenue in a year. And I want to do that by increasing my customer traffic to my website, 10X. Well, those are all very data-oriented answerable, and you can work backwards in your data to figure out how you can drive them. But if you don't start with the end, you could be just spiraling for years and years and years. Hoping to get lucky. Yeah, I think I've been hearing a lot of the word intent in many conversations these days is, you know, do you have intent? Because if you don't, you're just going to be wasting everybody's time. And Absolutely. Maybe you're you don't know what it is yet, but I think getting to the the crux of what's the intent. And Angelica, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the, it, well, here is this. It, um, I like to approach it from several several points of view, and that's also what I described in in some of the chapters. Is that um, you? I think the most powerful combination is to use the vertical way of steering, like from the KPIs back to the operational floor versus the horizontal flow, that's the process what is leading. And I think that combination is very, very powerful uh, and you can achieve uh, quick success by that, but you have to start somewhere with the, with the end in mind, right? Uh, because you, have, you want to go somewhere. You want to sell more products or you want to have more listeners to your podcasts, podcasts of, or uh, have better outcomes. So you have to, uh, to think about that. Then think about the data that is probably needed to to support your goals and that's what you can collect got it so that's where it, how you tune in to the data that can really help us make those decisions. well it's 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 it, it depends on the type of organization uh, if i i had once a customer who would who didn't know what to do they didn't have any strategical objectives or whatever they just said um, could you please have a look what is possible with our data and then it's a data driven approach right so then we take the data and we just work on that. And from there, we grow to a strategical objective because we, we can see what is there, what is possible. We discuss it with the customer and he says, oh, that's interesting. That will help you to grow. And then you can create an, a, a strategical objective. Uh, sometimes the strategic objectives are there. They are in place and we can have the vertical approach. Uh, and then sometimes even from a lean perspective, the processes are leading. And uh, but, I, but being able to combine it 
yeah, that's more powerful from my opinion. Uh, I think uh, the best way to do it is strategical objectives versus the processes and combine that to be successful. So it's not a matter of finding diamonds in their own field, right? I mean, you're not going to go into a company and just give us all your data and we're going to find opportunities that you guys are missing. Because... Uh, we could do that. We could do that, but I don't all think right. it's the correct, I, I don't think it's the correct approach. It depends on, it depends on the question and on the, uh, uh, on the desired outcome that a company wants. I, I truly believe that when we are starting with the journey in data and analytics and looking back, hindsight, that's more BI, right? That's business intelligence. But if you want to go uh, and, and, and find out amazing things like the golden nugget in a data set, yeah, then we talk about data, science, uh, artificial intelligence to find some amazing things. Uh, yeah, that's, it depends on where you are in the journey. Understood. I like that. So we all, I know you talked a little bit about in your book, the fact that we have these devices, which are really collecting data from us mm -hmm. at an alarming rate, which I hadn't considered. You even said you put a number on it, 1.7 megabytes per second. That's yes. just, to me, is mind boggling, right? That it's around, around the world, around the world. Yeah. Around the world, so global, uh, uh, 1.7 megabytes will, is collected for every second because we it's, this is our life this is the mini right. computer or we're this wearing it I, I see watches more and more now which you know those have voice they listen to our conversations and i think that we're all starting to wonder how often they're listening and then taking what we're speaking and converting that to text so now they can do something for example if you have the instagram app most people know when you're having a conversation with someone else about a product all of a sudden you start seeing ads for that and you're like, wait a minute, I never even searched for it. Yeah, and smart. I, I'm getting more uh, entrenched in the world of TikTok, uh, not by choice, but because my clients <laughs> are working in that direction. And I'm realizing that what the search algorithms are doing is they're converting the videos, the spoken word into text, which is helping the search algorithm so that they're basically yeah. putting your video in front of people. So you have to say the words but you, and you're using it very intentionally. Yeah, so when you're talking about data, uh, what's the difference between a surveyed data that somebody makes up a survey and wants answers to question versus just data that's out there and you aggregate that to try to get a sense of what's going on? The survey could be skewed by the way you ask questions. By the sponsors of the survey. Yeah, right. Uh, versus just here's a big trash can full of data and figure out what's in there. Uh, one of them implies that you could skew this, a survey to get you what you want to hear versus if you open up a trash can and you look in there, it's unpredictable what might come out. How do you differentiate those things? Yeah, I would, I, great question. I'd add into that too. You could also theoretically say, well, depending where the trash can is, it might also be biased because if the tri trash can's outside of a building that has a certain type of, you know, company or headquarters, it, it might be a biased trash can as well. But the, the point is, is valid is that's where the human element comes across everything we're doing, right? We machines are not taking over the world. You always need the human element. We have to tell the survey not to be biased. We have to tell the AI algorithms pulling the sentiment out of the trash can um, what we're looking for and validate that it's not pulling things that, you know, seemingly random, right? But they might not be random. We see that a lot in surveys 
at least in the U.S. in politics, where it turns out the surveys are are not, you know, random samplings. And sometimes it's unintentional. People don't want to admit what side they're on. So it looks random, but it's not. And that's where the human element always comes in to do that, that, you know, brain check. That does this add up? Is there anything I'm missing? Is there a scenario where these insights are misleading because of the sample size of the population or something like Yeah, exactly. Algorithms are also biased. Well, and that makes me think too, the other thing I've been hearing lots about lately is causation and the fact that cause and effect, we, you know, our brains immediately have to find the cause of something that occurred, but that's not the way the real world works. Oftentimes what happens is completely unrelated to something else, but, but we can't think that way. Like we just, we have to rationalize what happened and we often will pull at something that is totally inaccurate, but then that our life, we spend the rest of our lives with these, these assumptions. Validate your thoughts. It's, it's crazy. So I think the causation piece is worth kind of separating the data, you know, within looking at the data, re removing that false cause and effect thing, right? Absolutely. And it's not, to your point, it's not just one variable with the other. The world's so complex now. So it, you add on to it. That, yes, someone might be able to say that if someone says there's a correlation, I think between, you know, years Nicholas Cage is in a movie and the cheese growth in Wisconsin, like the common sense factor comes in. But now what's happening is someone might say, okay, my, my sales are down because my marketing leads are down and they're, they're related. And that might be a true statement, but it's not just marketing. It's like 20 other variables that are impacting it. And so we tend to think singularly instead of exponentially. So this is happening because of this one thing 100% of the time when in reality it's probably like 10% of 10 different things that are factoring it. And that's where the algorithms come in that help, but we just have to check those biases as well. Yeah. So well, I have to say goodbye to my daughter. She's going to bed. <laughs> that's okay. I know it's late for you, Angelica. Thank you. Yeah. And even this sort of false, maybe it's a false premise we've been living this lie our entire lives is the butterfly effect, right? I remember that if a butterfly flaps his wings, well, there's a, you know, thunderstorm uh, across the Atlantic and somehow that butterfly caused that. But that's really, I think, isn't that a lie? I mean, that's, there's no basis to that whole philosophy at all. Anyway. I can't see one now. That's not a scientific one. No. It, it just, it's, <laughs> logically, it makes sense. We can sort of latch onto that. There's movies that have been uh, made about it. Um, yeah, make there, good... there, but there are examples where, where things are correlated with each other, right? Like uh, uh, when uh, the sales is going up, the commissions are going up. Or uh, you know, that is something that is true. But you just, the thing is, and that's also in the book, you have to read the context around the graph that we see. To actually understand if it's legit, because you could also have a spurious relation, uh, spurious uh, correlation, like uh, consumption of pies versus jelly jellyfish things. Uh, it doesn't make sense, but you have to read the context around it as well. Hmm. And I like that, and I know that a big part of the uh, high hot topic in in business today is storytelling. And back to sort of this whole thing of, well, if we can make the customer sort of understand the story behind it, they're going to remember it. And they're going to, of course, buy because it's all about storytelling. I mean, this is sort of sales 101, but 
that's not the case often, right? It's, it's a good story is good marketing, but there's no basis necessarily behind it other than the fact that yeah, like it. <laughs> it, it was a good story and we love stories. That's just the way we're wired. Anyway, I think the data can tell a different story, especially when you look at it objectively. Um, so all these devices are collecting data on back where I was going before. Uh, and yes, we can basically have biofeedback to see what we can do to improve our physical health. Is there anything in the way you guys think about data that we can gather to make better decisions sort of on our, how our brains are operating? You know, we have all this great feedback on our physical health, but we don't have the same level of biofeedback, I think, maybe I'm wrong about this, with our mental health and our, you know, sort of the decisions and the, I guess you can look at your performance, your tangible results that you're getting is your financial returns, your, your work, you know, are you making progress in your professional career? Uh, are your re are relationships getting better? Like you can probably start setting some metrics about things to help you determine from a mental standpoint, but is there anything like, and I want to get into the tools that, that are in the book, but that you've used to adapt or pivot to more improving your life from a mental capacity. Maybe Kevin. Yeah, I mean, yeah absolutely. I, I can think of, I mean, I am a huge fan of showing your work. So post, you know, project or decision or whatever, whether it's business or individual, even if I wouldn't say an operational decision, like let's, let's brainstorm how I did deciding what I want to have lunch yesterday. Like that's not a good use of your time, but if it's a tactical strategic decision, you kind of want to go back and, and journal your decision journal. This was my thought process. Mm. This was the outcome. And one of the things that we stress in the book is, to your point, you can look at results, but there is a scenario where you get the right result by chance or by luck. And you don't want to then assume everything's right because I got the right result. So you want to definitely look at the result and the outcome, but you also want to look at the process. Where, what did I learn from what, what assumptions did I have? Did I draw and list all my assumptions out? Um, and the analogy we share and we share in the book too is like when our kids are going to school, the teachers ask them to show their work so that they, if they get it wrong, the teacher can say, you messed up here, here's how you fix it. In business, if we don't write our work down, no one can look and see where we made the mistake and more importantly, correct us about it. So to me, it's all about um, journaling your decisions and your thought processes yeah. that are coming into them. Yeah, that's actually what I do as a teacher. I always provide feedback on the documents or the, the assignments that the students are working on. That's an, that, because when I was a student, I always was trying to search for how does my teacher want it? Um, what's, what chapters, what, what, what's, how should I build this, this, this document, this assignment? And sometimes as a student, I felt so hopeless that I, I, I had to find all kinds of materials online or try and trial and error. I made a document and he said, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. and I thought, okay, but what did I do wrong? And now I am for 15 years already a student, a teacher and every, every, every single semester that I do, all my students will get personal provided feedback so they can learn. Very important. Well, I, I like that. And the I think trial and error, Angelica, you touched on a really important point that we sort of live our lives 
through trial and error by learn by doing and maybe we do the necessary we we we're going through some things over and over again that we probably don't have to we're we're putting ourselves through a little more misery than if we step back and look at it from the view of a data scientist and really looked at the method that we're going through because i wrote down uh it's funny the timing on this is good um there's a quote by uh pablo picasso the more technique you have, the less you have to worry about it. The more technique there is, the less there is. Which I thought was just perfect timing and brilliant that you sort of, yes, creative, the creative outlet that we all have in our lives is, is wonderful, but constraining that a little bit with some methodology will allow you to produce far more in the world. Um, Picasso, right? I mean, he produced a lot of work. And he clearly had a method. And I think about like the, the directors, the authors, the musicians who crank out work consistently year after year after year. I don't think that they're just like in this creative infinite world of like, let's just see what sticks. I think they've got a very specific process that they follow, a workflow, if you will. And, you know, looking at the results and backing off from the data, I think would help us see that. Absolutely. Completely yeah. agree. So now we're into the world of, and this is consistent with lots of conversations I have with people, is information overload in the world we live today. Absolutely too much information is coming at us. We all feel like we're going to get dementia at a very young age because our brains are just being redlined and trying to process it. I think the lack of sleep that many of us suffer is the reality of trying to process the sheer volume of information that's coming in. So can you help uh, help us understand how do we extrapolate all this disparate sources, data sources to make the best decision and not get into, uh, get frozen, right? With the fact that paralysis, we're basically have paralysis because we're trying to process so much information. It's, it's just crazy. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I call it a dashboard stress as well, or visualization stress, or information overload. We have too much around us, right? And uh, to form, to accept, to actually understand what you want to measure, uh, uh, you need your organizational goals, right? And we tend to to extract everything into one big data mesh or ocean or data lake, and. Uh, but from my point of view, from the business point of view, I think you should think about the goals that you want to achieve and base, and that's your data vision, that's your data strategy. And from there on, you will start loading your data. Comes uh, back and, to and, intent. Mm -hmm. and yeah, it comes back again to intent, but also uh, to, to make it more, uh, yeah, more mellow, like easy. I see dashboards uh, passing by with, sheets with <laughs> hundreds of sheets in a dashboard with more than 200 types of visualizations. And then I think to myself, where do I have to look? What's important? What's, what's, what, what mm. will be, will they use or uh, are they using everything? And thank God there are some crazy intelligent people that have built some cool governance dashboards to measure also the uses of, of some types of objects that we have created and just remove the clutter. If you don't use it, move it, go out, make it simple. 
as Leonardo da Vinci once said, uh, uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. And I truly believe that. Less is more. Also in data and analytics. Kevin, any thoughts? Anything to add? Uh, yeah, I agree. I, and I, I say, you know, I think of it at two different levels. Like on one hand, I want to say the human brain shouldn't have to do that. That's where you want to, like, we want to leverage technology and humans together. And I would let technology do the things that it's better at, which is just pure processing power, and then let us make the insights and the discussion. So on one end, you have tons of data sources, let an algorithm come up with a first pass that you can then check. But then for decisions that are not, you know, technical, um, to, to validate Angelica's point of view, it, you want to tie to your goals, you want to think about it. So the, and this is kind of an urban legend, but it's a true story. Like if you're interested in buying a new car and you think you're going to buy like a white SUV, all of a sudden you're going to start seeing more SUVs on the road. Now you're not actually seeing more SUVs. What you told your brain is white SUVs are relevant to me. So the brain catches them in, in all of those data points. So when you have the organizational goals and you tie to them, you're saying to your brain, this is relevant, catch anything related to this and filter things out. Um, it'll be fascinating. So now, you know, it's in everyone's mind. I guarantee more people the rest of the week will see more white SUVs. In this case, it's false. It's not really relevant to you, but I told your brain because you're listening that it's relevant. It fascinates me how the brain works, but it, it, it also highlights Angelica's point. You need to tell the brain what you're interested in. And then it's going to look for it for you. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that what, what we measure matters, but what we measure matters more. Like all of a sudden we start to pay attention to it and it has more meaning to it, meaning to us as opposed to sort of like, let's take our finances. You know, when there's not a problem and the bills are getting paid every month, it's not a problem. But once all of a sudden things start to, you have a few hiccups, all of a sudden you start to manage your finances and all of a sudden the every dollar has more meaning to you. You're not wasting it. You're not, you know, you're thinking twice before you make a decision because now you've got the data. The reality is you've probably always, if you've always had that, you will be far better off in the world. And I think that uh, that goes to many ways, even your, your own personal health. Like if, as long as we don't pay attention to taking care of ourselves it, and until it becomes a problem, then all of a sudden we get super focused and we become experts on all these different topics. Exactly what also happened during the pandemic, right? Because mm -hmm. when the pandemic came, we all were looking for data to understand what was going on in our beautiful world, right? Because it, it moved from East to West, uh, the virus. And uh, we all started thinking about okay, where can I find information? I was I'm a data nerd as well. I tried. I went to John Hopkins, took data from there. Uh, I went to the, the ACDC in in Europe to to collect data to create my own dashboards, but also flight data. I took in stock data. I threw in even uh, clinical trials data. I threw in to to have that picture in my in my head to create a picture for myself to understand the pandemic better. And as one of our friends, you know, Kevin and I, we both uh, uh, lost a friend, a dear friend, two years ago. And he, he said in his last interview with me just a week before he died, uh, Angelica, due to the pandemic, the world has moved ahead about five to seven years in time in only six months time. And I truly believe that because and we have that need for data still here. And that is what the pandemic brought us. Wow. As well. 
Yeah. Who you guys have gone through this and, and again, congratulations on completing the book in your mind, who is the ideal reader and what do you hope they get from the book in a nutshell? I'll start with you, Kevin. The ideal reader for me is someone who needs to make decisions, which kind of is everyone um, across different industries, whether you're a business person or an individual, and you want to start increasing the effectiveness of that by harnessing the data you have available. But like we said before, don't think of data as it's just a spreadsheet. It could be reviews on booking.com or Amazon, as Angelica says. It could be um, survey data, as mentioned before. Um, and I think what they're going to get out of it are methodologies and frameworks that will help them get towards there. Um, like we talked about before, having a methodology and a framework is going to increase the effectiveness of it. I think it does a good job through storytelling and other ways showing why it's relevant and why it's useful. Because we all know people aren't just going to say, well, they said it, it must be true, I'm going to adopt it. They need proof points. And so I think it, it does a good job giving proof points of why this is important and relevant. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's for someone who wants to make a decision and wants to understand uh, what it is all about, what the buzz is all about. And, uh, uh, um, and, it, and the, the amount of data literacy maturity you have to gain depends totally on the seat that you're on in your organization. It's the role that you have in your organization. I do not expect a director to be fully equipped with data literacy uh, skills but I expect him to give the good example to the people at the floor, how they work with data and how they use it to make their decisions. So they are the leading examples in organizations and it depends on where you are in that organization. So you could probably give, us some, give me some great examples of companies that have been built entire business models on data literacy. I mean, I, I think of consultants as the first thing, right? A really good consultant Firm would be able to be basically come into a company, help them interpret the data, understanding their goals. And they've been doing that, I guess, for years. But are there actual companies emerging business models that didn't even exist before this whole data literacy world existed um, or, or discipline, I guess we would really call it? Well, Bitmetric, where I work, we use it uh, uh, as a, um, it's, a it's the products that we, that we, of course, sell. Like the tool that yeah, it's about organizational data literacy, it's about data management, about data and analytics itself, but also about education. Uh, and we developed a program around it. And now, even since uh, two weeks, I have also a data escape room in English available, so it can be played worldwide. But we use data to make to also create team building because it's something that people should do together. You should discuss the outcomes. Uh, to avoid biased thinking, and uh, you have to be critical to the things that you do. Just we have a program for data literacy. We have some customers uh, working with that uh, here in the Netherlands, and of course also in Canada, where I teach uh, virtually uh, uh, lessons about how to visualize data, the, the basics of data literacy, but also I can customize uh, uh, workshops for the senior leader teams, for example. That's what I do. That's my daily life. Got it. Yeah. And of course, my students at the university. Kevin, any innovative companies um, that are leveraging this whole data literacy 
Yeah, and it might not be a new business model, or it might be, but I think there are companies like Netflix, right, the streaming services, that yeah. imagine if, if they didn't capture data and they didn't have recommendations, if you like this movie, so you'll like this one, or they didn't cancel shows because there wasn't enough, all of that is data-driven, or then you think of um, even Amazon with the feedback and the reviews, and to the point that now it's at the point where I live that I can actually get a delivery at Amazon same day. Well, how do they do that? Well, they have data. They know that the products that are more likely to sell in this region, they're going to stock in the closed warehouse. And if they didn't have that data, they wouldn't do it. So it's not so much a new business model, but it allows them to get more value to the customer because they're leveraging it properly. Or things like Airbnb, all of those, they're, I guess they're updated business models. They're still retail to some extent, but it's because they're using data creatively, innovatively to, to give me, the consumer, more value. Exactly. And so that's like, happening all around the world, right? With the sensors yeah. that we that we wear, uh, uh, close football teams that use uh, that use sensors in their in their shirts, uh, rugby players uh, that have sent GPS trackers on, on their back to calculate. I did a, a cool project, small project uh, with, a, with one of my consultants for a rugby, the Dutch rugby union. And we extracted the data and created some cool insights about impacts and speed and how much did they run. Uh, and that's happening all around the world, right? Like uh, the, the, the Oakland A's, that they use data to create teams. That's what's happening all around the world. Well, and it is making me, that one of the takeaways for me is that, you know, what data should I be collecting that I'm not? I'm sort of leaving the data on the table and in one way and not collecting really valuable insights that would help me make better decisions for my business five years down, you know, next year. Like I've sort of, you know, we get stuck in this, you know, I've been doing this for 14 years, what I do now. And it's sort of like, okay, I literally can sit down and do the same thing I did 14 years ago. And like, that's, that's not progress to me. Like I should be doing something much different if I'd been collecting data and seeing sort of, I guess you're watching trends, right? Of where like there's, there's an opportunity here, but you didn't look at the data. So you sort of missed it. Someone else yeah. got it. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. The trend, the outliers, some people will say it's an outlier, just ignore it. I'm a firm believer. The outlier is probably giving you a new insight into maybe a new business model, maybe a new um, channel to go market against. Uh, I don't know if it's an urban legend or not, but someone had told me um, the company that, that manufactures Viagra, it was a hair loss pill for men. And it had a couple adverse events, which are outliers. And they <laughs> dug into like, wow, there's a whole new million dollar business model here. But if they ignored the outlier, then they never would have gotten that conclusion. Yeah, exactly. And like Dr. Snow in London, right through... Going after the outlier, he found the source of the cholera epidemic in uh, in uh, London, and he could close down that well just by looking at the outliers. And sometimes outliers are very, very important. Well, and that makes kind of the case for looking at your data with far more discrimination than maybe we have in the past, and starting to collect and build those dashboards for each of our businesses and individuals. Right? Here's the things that matter and building some methodologies into it and not just continuing this trial and error because that just doesn't work. We can't, we can't trust our brains, our guts anymore to tell us and lead us down the right path. Exactly. Any other 
Go ahead, John. Any other questions? Uh, yeah, it sounds to me like when you think of data, then you have to be totally impartial and then sort it out after you've had the chance to review it and say, this is not valid or whatever. But I guess all data has some value, even if you discard it. Mm -hmm. uh, depending on the question, absolutely. You could have data that is completely useless for the question you have, but completely the golden nugget for a different question. Um, but in, to your first point, we are unfortunately all emotional beings, right? So it, we have the emotional element of, of applying that to data and sometimes seeing things that are we don't want to believe or vice versa. And that's why it's really important, again, to follow the models and methodologies and frameworks that we talked about in the book to, to help overcome the fact that we are emotional beings that might misinterpret, ignore, misuse data. Yeah, we tend to amplify things. I, I mean, I've heard the world is actually a much safer place than it was 20 years ago, but it doesn't feel like it because the things that do happen get amplified far bigger than they did 20 years ago or 30. You know, we didn't know about every shooting that happened within hours after it happened. They were exactly. happening, but now it's like far more pervasive and prevalent. And so we have this fear that, oh, well, the world is a much scarier place. But if you look at the hard data, no, the world is actually a much safer place. Um, so anyway, the book is, like I said, if you guys, uh, anyone listening wants to dig into it deeper, um, I know that you can find out more about it on Kevin's website, kevinhannigan.com. Uh, you can find more of the tools at turningdataintowisdom.com. Angelica, on your end of the, on your side of the pond, are there some resources you want to share? For well, it's LinkedIn, mostly where I have my articles or the okay. website of uh, Bitmetric, bitmetric.nl. And there you can find also some stories and some recordings, of course, about the webinars that we did. And, uh, well, and anybody can reach out through LinkedIn uh, to me and I can answer questions. Uh, I don't have a, an own website yet. <laughs> You're just starting. Kevin's been out. I'm just for a while. starting six years old and I feel like a 10 year old, guys, really. <laughs> Kevin, any other resources you want to throw out there for listeners? For them? Um, well, they can go to Amazon.com directly or yeah. whichever Amazon subsidiary and type in data literacy and practice and they'll find it and they can pre order it now or order it when it comes out. And Angelica, I'll ask you to follow up because I think I'll put this in the in the uh, comments at somewhere in the wherever this podcast is being shared. But I'm very curious about this data escape room that you mentioned. That and is amazing. It's an amazing. It's an amazing data escape room. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you need to send me more information on that, and I'll share it with our listeners. But I will. I will send some information to you, uh, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tech Reads, sponsored by SoftTech. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. If you have comments, questions, or want to suggest an author for a future episode, visit SoftTech at softec.org and click on the Tech Reads link.